Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Trump says to his supporters, even if you die voting for me, it'll be worth it. We have such an interesting show today. Democratic strategist Simon Rosenberg tells us what he's watching in order to predict the 2024 election. Then we'll talk to Everytown USA's Jonathan Feinblatt about the downfall of the NRA and how every town is policing gun manufacturers. But first, we have the host of the Katie Fang Show, the one, the only, Katie Fang. Welcome to Fast Politics, my actual friend who I hang out with and who I love and who is on my Instagram all the time, Katie Fang. Hello. Hello. So, Katie, you have a new show premiering on Saturday, which is the Katie Fang Show. New time, new place, but all Katie. Yeah, it's new, new time. Same Katie Fang Show. I think uh, I'll call it picante. Same spice <laughs> that we can yes. have. But I'd like to think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of venturing out on year three of the Katie Fang Show, so. We're going to try some different stuff. It's still going to be the same focus on law, politics, culture, et cetera. But, I, you know, we you may see some new stuff coming out this year. I think it makes sense for us to kind of branch out a little bit and see, you know, what else we can do. But I'm excited. 12 o'clock Eastern means that my incredibly faithful and loyal followers on the West Coast can actually sleep in and watch at 9 a.m. Pacific, which will be great for them. So let's talk about Trump legal, because that seems like an endless cavalcade 
of excitement and excitement. I mean, fuckery. So let's talk about what the landscape looks like right now. Sort of what's coming up, what's just happened. Give me the sort of 411 on this. Okay, so we are waiting to see what the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals does with Donald Trump's appeal of Judge Tanya Chutkin's decision to deny his motion to dismiss on the basis of absolute presidential immunity and double jeopardy. Right. That's that he's a king. It's it's actually more than a king. I, I feel like sometimes maybe in the history of the world, there were enlightened despots and maybe they were, you know, kings and queens. I mean, what he's asking for is carte blanche to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it under the guise of the Oval Office. And I think people don't appreciate the danger of it. And they, they probably should by now when you hear a federal appellate judge, and I'm, and I'm sure this is the first time any of these incredibly brilliant jurists have ever asked a lawyer during oral arguments in their careers, right? You know, so you're saying, Mr. Sauer, that your client or president could order the assassination of a political rival by dispatching SEAL Team 6, and he would have immunity to which Sauer says, oh, I'll give you a qualified yes, Judge. I mean, when you have that type of Q&A going on, you know that we've jumped the shark. But we've done it in a way where now those safeguards, those guardrails, stuff that you and I talk about a lot on my show, Molly, those have been destroyed. And I think that's the most disconcerting thing, that the destruction of norms by Donald Trump has become just so okay by the GOP and others that we face a very real, very scary, terrifying uphill battle to get us back to where we need to be. That Trump lawyer's argument that the president could do crimes and that you would just have to impeach and convict before you could prosecute, which is so interesting because remember, impeachment was created as a political mechanism, right? It is not a legal mechanism. And we saw this happen in other impeachments, right? Like Nixon's impeachment or even Bill Clinton's impeachment, right? Political mechanism, but also a way for a president to to be held accountable when they did something really beyond the pale. One of the things I'm so impressed with with Trump world and impressed by impressed, I mean, these guys are such hypocrites, is that they will do a thing where they'll say like, no, you have to try him in a court of law during the impeachment. And then during the trial, they'll be like, no, this was something that should have been dealt with during impeachment. Yeah. And and one of the three appellate judges during the oral arguments this past week made that distinction and said, you know, your client, and you may not have been the lawyer at the time, Mr. Sauer, but your client explicitly stated that impeachment should be stayed, you know, if it occurs at all. There's recourse available, and that's when Trump is out of the office. And now, Mr. Sauer, you're claiming, oh, no, 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 you have to be impeaching convicted. I mean, that's the reason why a lot of us, in terms of legal experts, we're waiting to see what happens, because it is a foregone conclusion that this D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is going to affirm the decision by Judge Chuckin to deny these motions to dismiss. And so the Supreme Court in the United States then has to decide whether or not it wants to take this case or not. Now, it could just let that decision by the D.C. Circuit stand. But, you know, I've had conversations with others. I mean, and, and, and this is an admission of how, you know, much of a law geek I am, that these conversations dominate my life outside of the Katie Fang show and when I do legal analysis on MS. And we talk about how 
he's raised this defense in other jurisdictions. And so it kind of makes sense that the Supreme Court would want to take it up to kind of put it to bed. The problem is, if you're a Supreme Court justice, do you necessarily want to touch this issue? I don't think you do. Well, this is the problem. Right? You don't want to touch this issue. And so are you going to take this issue up? And that's really the one that we're, this is really the case that we're waiting to see, you know, what happens, because it really drives the rest of the other criminal prosecutions that are, you know, at issue for Donald Trump. And I would say, I think it's interesting, there are a couple of things that Trump wants the Supreme Court to weigh in on, the Supreme Court that he installed to weigh in on, right? Yeah. He always wants these people. But I mean, that's why Yelena Haba is going on Fox News and saying that Trump fought for Brett Kavanaugh and Brett Kavanaugh is going to step up and do the right thing. I mean, it is egregious to say the quiet part out loud, and yet they don't give a shit, right? Like there's been no accountability for them saying the quiet part out loud for years. And so that's why she thinks it's okay as a, an attorney who's barred in the state of New Jersey and perhaps other, other jurisdictions, she thinks it's okay to go on national television and say, hey, Brett, are you listening? Hey, Brett, we fought to get you on the Supreme Court in the United States. You owe us. It's time to cash in the chit, right? That's what she's saying. My guess is he, she's doing this because even though Brett may not watch Fox News, we know Justice Alito loves to watch Fox News and has Fox News brain. And also Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, is a uh, far right media act, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's a whole other that's a whole other conversation for us to have, right, about Clarence Thomas not recusing himself when these cases come before him, especially considering this one deals with the heart of the 2020 election. I mean, what we're seeing is a collision that was bound to happen. And it's a collision of interests, political, legal interests, the public policy interests. I mean, it's all kind of coming to roost. And and, and now you really want to know what your legacy is going to be. I mean, listen, if you're a federal court judge that has a lifetime appointment, especially if you're Supreme Court justice, maybe you don't care what your legacy is. But I would hope that you would care about what your legacy is if you decide that somebody like Donald Trump can be not only king for a day, but, you know, dictator or autocrat for life. But then, you know, I've been seeing these these things flying around on social media, Molly, about, oh, well, then if that's the case, then Joe Biden could take Donald Trump and stick him in Gitmo and say it was okay for national security. I mean, listen, you and I both know that to tit for tat is not the way to do this. I mean, Trumpism only works for Trump. I mean, not that Joe Biden would never do that. He's very much a traditionalist. But also, even if he tried to do that, it would never work for Biden. On my last Sunday show that I did, I had this commentary where I said, look, you know, it may be it may seem really dark, but we have to keep the faith. And that's kind of my mantra going into 2024. I am very big on reporting the what's happening. And there's just so much going on legally and politically. But, you know, we, we do have power in numbers. There is a collective power to us. And and if we don't kind of um, take the bait and if we don't kind of buy into that, we have to respond tit for tat, we preserve what's left of democracy in a way that should be preserved. I find it to be so disheartening and exhausting to always be having these conversations. And yet we have to. We have to have these conversations. We need to be very blunt about what there is in store for us. If Trump wins in November, because in the meantime, I don't see these cases going to trial before November. I don't have a trial date from McAfee and Fulton County yet. You and I both know Aileen Cannon's going to punt her trial beyond November. And then depending upon what happens with SCOTUS and the efficacy or the expediency of what happens, you may not get this Chuckin trial before November. The Manhattan DA's office is supposed to go to trial in March, but Alvin Bragg has said he'll take a back seat to a federal prosecution. I mean, there's so much going on. And I feel like our judicial system 
Joyce Vance wrote a piece recently about how they owe us expediency. I don't see them moving as fast as they should, but you know, I'm hoping that we have some type of resolution of at least one of these cases by November. Yeah, you and I are both big Joyce Vance fans. She has dealt with cases at this level before, but the case that seemed the most likely to go first was the documents case, right? Yeah, but but for the assignment to Aileen Cannon, right? So she's going to keep punting. And that is really ultimately the case that's the simplest, right? Oh, yeah. I think it's not only the easiest to understand, but the guilt is in your face. You know, people have this big discussion about the Section 3 14th Amendment cases that are working their way to the Supreme Court right now. Colorado is the only one that's made it there. And, you know, when we look at it, and it's very clear to you and I, right, when we have our conversations about what constitutes an insurrection, et cetera, what's inciting, what's engaging in an insurrection. I mean, it's pretty black and white to us. But, you know, and from the Mar-a-Lago case standpoint, how much more clear does that have to be? The guy wasn't supposed to have the docs. He had them and he didn't return them. I mean, that's what you and I teach our kids, right? We've taught our kids. You're not supposed to take it. If you take it, you're in trouble. I don't mean to make it too elementary, but that's how it's supposed to be. I mean, as a prosecutor, you want a case. That is that straightforward. You want a case that doesn't require you having a conversation about the intent to foment an insurrection or a rebellion. And so that case is the easiest to do. That case was premised on a a search warrant, Molly. And that's the other thing that people need to remember. You know, all of these were indictments that were returned against Trump and others. But in the Mar-a-Lago context, there was a search warrant that was executed on Mar-a-Lago. I mean, there was probable cause that was found over and over again that crimes had been committed and that the the evidence of those crimes would be located in Donald Trump's Florida residence. And so I think these are the things that would make it so compelling as a prosecutor. But Aileen Cannon is hell-bent on doing her version of justice. And, you know, I, I take my job as I'm, I'm still a trial lawyer. I mean, I'm not actively practicing, but I take my job as a lawyer and my oath of, of you know, being a lawyer seriously, Molly. And we're not supposed to criticize other lawyers and we're not supposed to criticize judges. But when when you see injustice happening, you have to see something. And fortunately for me, I have a platform where I'm able to say what I think I'm calling balls and strikes. And if I see something wrong, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And now I want to ask you with the fake electors, there are all these other cases that might be sort of bubbling under the surface. I mean, do you think there will be more cases? We don't have a crystal ball as to what cases will go first or when they'll happen. Trump obviously wants everything to happen after the election because he's really running to stay out of jail anyway. But with the fake electors stuff in Michigan and we saw that in other states, like, do you think that there will be more cases with that stuff? The answer is yes. You're going to see more cases. There are several attorneys general in different states and mainly the the states that we've talked about over the past few years about where there were active attempts to be able to manipulate the outcome of that 2020 election. One of the kind of people that we watched carefully to see if there's going to be more charges coming is Ken Chesbrough. So Ken Chesbrough has been <laughs> doing a little bit of what I call a retribution for. I need you to stop and explain to our listeners who... Ken Cheesebro is. And again, his name is not Ken Cheesebro, but yes, continue. Uh, Ken Cheesebro. Ken Chesbro, yes. Ken Cheesebro, the architect of the fake electric scheme. Fascinatingly, he's very independently wealthy from investments. I think he did Bitcoin or something, whatever, right? Yeah, crypto, yeah. Yeah, and he lives in Puerto Rico. As well. (laughs) So he doesn't have to pay federal taxes, yes. And he has a very interesting personal life. But Ken Chesbro, as we know, moved to sever his case, filed a speedy demand in Fulton County. 
He was the architect of the fake elector scheme. He's the guy who was writing the memos, him and Jeff Clark. I mean, you know, these guys were were hustling, right, to be able to get a legal scheme in place so Donald Trump could install fake electors in specific states to make sure that Mike Pence did not certify the valid legal results from the 2020 election of Joe Biden being president. But the reason why I say we should watch Ken Chesbro when he's doing is, I call it his retribution tour, although it's too little too late. But as a condition of his plea of guilty down in Fulton County, Georgia, he's had to go and cooperate with other jurisdictions. And that's what he's been doing. He has been going to different jurisdictions and cooperating with investigations there about fake elector schemes. And so I think if you want to know if there's other charges that are going to come beyond just Michigan, I think that you can look and see where's Ken Chesbro, kind of like where's Waldo, right? Where is Ken Chesbro today? What is he doing? Who is he talking to? But ultimately, what people need to remember is to prove a case beyond and to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt, because that is the standard of proof in a criminal case. You need to make sure sure that each defendant, each criminal defendant, Molly, has their own independent liability culpability, right? So Ken Chesbro going to Arizona or going to another state and saying, you know, this is what I did and doing a mea culpa and a full confession is one thing. How does that tie to Donald Trump though, right? Like how does it tie to other major players? And Donald Trump, I think if there's one thing he's done really well his entire life is, he has figured the art of not making money because we all know that all of that is bullshit, but figured out the art of making other people take the fall for him, right? He's figured out the art of making other people feel like they owe him something. Now, there could be because he has dirt on them. It could be because he has compromise on them. Fine. But it still takes a skill to do that. And no matter how stupid I think he is, no matter some days I think he's crazy like a fox, Trump has figured out how to make even brilliant lawyers, because by everybody's admission, Ken Chesbro is a and was a brilliant lawyer. Right. And he is doing a plea deal. Yeah. And the man's pleaded guilty. People can take the fall for Trump, but is there the evidence to link? And that is what we're always kind of looking at, which is why getting to your point, Mar-a-Lago is a compelling case. The 1-6 case that Chuckin has, even though Chuckin has her, you know, pedal to the metal in terms of the gas to get this thing done, that was not as clear cut for some people. I think it is. But, you know, I, I obviously have a bias on this. So, you know, we're and just like the Manhattan criminal case, that one may not be as clear cut for others as well. So I feel like Mar-a-Lago is one of the tightest, strongest cases, but because of Aileen Cannon may not get there anytime soon. Right. And that is so, such a bummer. My God. Just on that idea of people taking the fall for Trump, one Rudolph Giuliani. Oh. <laughs> Things is going to end well for Rudolph Giuliani. He looks like he's going to drop dead any day, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm not making, I'm not wishing it. I'm just saying, he looks bad. I feel like you bet on those actuarial tables. It never works out. But I, I'm curious, uh, legally, the guy's in a lot of trouble, right? Yeah. So I, I'll stay in my legal lane, Molly, and I will, you know, opine on dropping debt. So here's the deal. Giuliani filing for bankruptcy is not the save all for him. His continued defamation of Ruby Freeman, Shamos, and others, by the way, not just Ruby Freeman and Shamos, that is going to be a serial problem for him. The bankruptcy thing is fascinating. And, and, and people always think, oh, yeah, you file for bankruptcy, it goes away. It doesn't. Alex Jones tried it and failed miserably. Rudy Giuliani is going to try this. He's going to fail miserably as well. But people also need to know, 
it's not just Shane Moss and Ruby Freeman that are now judgment creditors that are going to come after Rudy Giuliani. He owes a lot of money to his ex-wife. He owes a lot of money to other creditors. And so Giuliani's luck will run out when the money runs out. But the money hasn't run out because Trump is still you know, pushing people to spend $1,500 a plate for dinners in support of Rudy Giuliani. But don't forget, there's still leverage in Fulton County because Rudy still has a criminal case in Fulton County. And by the last media reports, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis is not going to be offering a plea offer to Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, and Donald Trump. So Rudy is going to have to figure out whether he can survive I won't say literally, um, getting <laughs> financially to trial in Fulton County. Again, we don't have a trial date. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. In fact, there's a hearing tomorrow on some of the stuff that he's filed. And so the latest for Rudy Giuliani is he wants to be able to interview Sidney Powell, Ken Chesbro, Scott Hall, and Jenna Ellis. Those are the four people that I've taken a plea so far in Fulton County. He wants to be able to interview them because he says he has to get all this information out of them. But it's it's interesting because Giuliani still has massive exposure as well criminally, and that has to always remain an incentive for him. But I don't know. Again, I mean, if there was anybody on that kind of, you know, batting order of people, of lawyers specifically in Trump world that had the greatest fall from grace, it's obviously Rudy Giuliani. Yes, but he's not alone. Katie Fang, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, this was lovely. It's like when I'm just hanging out talking to Molly John Phelps. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, right? Well, not so fast. What about your out-of-pocket costs? That can be a lot of money for you and your family. And if you're like me, you can't help but wonder, was I overbilled? You're not alone. It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? It's a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. HealthLock finds medical bill errors before you pay. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. 
And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Simon Rosenberg is the founder of the New Democrat Network and the New Policy Institute. Welcome to Fast Politics, Simon Rosenberg. Good to be here, Molly. Explain to us a little bit about what you do and how you got there. Yeah, so I've been in democratic politics for more than 30 years. I ran a think tank. I've worked on campaigns. I've done it all, you know, raise money, do stats, the whole thing. And, you know, a year and a half ago, I started challenging the conventional wisdom that there was a red wave coming based on data that I was seeing. And I collaborated with a guy named Tom Bonnier, and he and I were looking at things other than polling to assess and to gauge the election in 2022. 24-7, this is all I think about. <laughs> what are the things other than polling that can show us? Yeah, I mean, look, I think we learned in 2022 that centering your understanding of American politics around polling is very risky, right? I mean, there was it didn't work in 2022. And it didn't work because there was all these other things. And the other things were strong democratic performance in special elections all across the country in 2022 after Dobbs. We saw voter registration numbers get far better for Democrats. We saw Democrats outraising Republicans by huge amounts, three, four, five to one. And then we saw in the early vote, you know, heightened democratic performance, unexpectedly, by the way, heightened democratic performance. And all of those indicators suggested that the that the intensity was with Democrats, not with Republicans, and that it was the opposite of a red wave. And and that's actually what happened in the election. What happened in the election was that Democrats dramatically overperformed expectations in polling. We gained ground over our 2020 results in Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, Minnesota, Michigan, New Hampshire, and Pennsylvania. We got all the way up to 59% in Colorado, 57% in Pennsylvania, 55% in Michigan, which would be amazing results in a good year. And this was a so-called, you know, red wave bad year for us. And so, you know, part of what happened is that I think polling is really struggling 
capture the current dynamic of American politics because for one central reason, which is that response rates and polling have gone way down and getting an accurate poll now has become much harder and expensive. And what's happening is shortcuts are being taken and we're getting a lot more junky polling in our system than we used to, even from very credible news organizations. I mean, the Washington Post deserves a lot of credit because they had a really bad poll a few months ago. And in the write-up of the poll, they acknowledged that they thought the data was bad. It would be it would be good if more media organizations, independent media organizations, were a little bit more honest about the limitations of polling. And and you know, because it's become such a huge part of our understanding of, of our politics. And I'll give you one other example, right? I mean, if everything was so bad for Democrats and Biden's numbers were so terrible and his approval rating was so bad, why do we keep winning elections all over the country? I mean, 2023 was an even better year for us politically than 2022. We gained ground in state legislative races, five points. We had a five-point higher number than we had in those same districts in 2020, a crazy result. We took away two of the largest Republican cities in America, Colorado Springs and Jacksonville. We took away it was Wisconsin Supreme Court seat. We took away the six-week abortion ban in Ohio. We took away the state house in Virginia. We had a, It was a blue wave that washed all over the country this year. And in the political commentary, that didn't even happen, right? It was absent from the discourse and the understanding. And and so I think my basic lesson here is that there's a lot of other things we can look at to assess where we are in politics. Polling has its limitations. And I think the media industrial polling complex needs to be a little bit more honest about the limitations of what polling can really tell you. If we look at 2016, right, that was an entire year where we spent believing that Hillary Clinton had a 70, 80, 90 percent chance of being elected. And Donald Trump had a 15, you know, 11 percent chance. And some pollsters, if you complain to them, they'll say, well, you don't understand polls are just this or that. But I want to get back to this idea about results, though, because I certainly believed the red wave narrative. I wondered, but I thought, you know, history is pressing. The president's party always does poorly. I could see historically that there was some precedent for a red wave. But in 2023, we had had all of these special elections where basically every special election since Dobbs, Democrats have done 10, 15, I mean, crazy numbers better than they should. Right. And then there was that Ohio special, which was in August, where they had hidden it away and they got, you know, Democrats won that by 10 points or something crazy. But I know ballot initiatives tend to skew more liberal. So I maybe I threw that out. But with 2023, I really thought, and this is like the sort of pundit industrial complex in me, I thought Youngkin wears a vest. People like him. You know, he's got this number for abortion bans. It's 15 weeks. It's polled very well. Again, polling. He's going to win the state houses in Virginia. That did not happen. You raised so many different things. I'll check them off really quickly. In 2016, remember, that election was over. Hillary was going to win. We had had the three debates. And then the FBI intervened. And if the FBI had not intervened, she would have won the election by five or six points. I mean, we know this from polling data. Yeah, so though James Comey and the FBI and their intervention is what handed Trump the presidency and made that 15% chance happen, right? And so the polling wasn't wrong in 2016. It was that there was a dramatic thing that happened that changed the election at the end. And that's what happens. I mean, elections change. Things change them. In this last year, as you pointed out, we won every type of race. It was a ballot initiative, a Supreme Court special election. We won state legislative special elections. We won mayoralties, right? We won everything. We won the state house in Virginia. 
And I think that this idea that the traditional fade of the party in power has not happened now in two elections, in 2022 and in 2023, is a very dramatic outcome in our politics. And it's the most important electoral data that we have. And it's basically not being discussed at all, right? I mean, it's barely part of our discourse. And it should be central to our understanding of our politics far more than all this bouncy and junky polling that we're seeing around. I mean, I've been in the business, right? You win or lose. You, you know, I've been on real campaigns. Winning an election, winning again and again and again all across the country in all sorts of different races, you'd so much rather be that party than the other party, right? And who keep underperforming. And keep in mind, in 2018, right, once Trump kind of ripped his shirt open and became MAGA in 2017, 2018, which, you know, there was some belief he might be kind of a country club Republican, you know, in 2016. He ripped his shirt open. He became MAGA. He's lost ever since. Yeah, he's been getting crushed. And in fact, if you watch what's happening inside the Republican Party right now, the criticism of Ronald Romney McDaniel for continuing to lose election after election is a major part of their current discourse. And that discourse is not bleeding into the broader commentaria, right? And so let me just say very quickly why I'm optimistic about 2024. First, Joe Biden has been a good president and the country's better off and we're going to have a really strong case for re-election. Second, the Democratic Party is strong and we're winning elections all over the country. And it's been heightened since Dobbs in spring of 2022. Finally, they have Trump. And Trump is a far weaker candidate than he was in 2020. He's more degraded. He's more extreme. He's more dangerous. He's further away from the electorate. And I think it's going to, the Republicans are taking an extraordinary historic risk by backing him. I think that what's happened in the commentary is that we have overly discounted two big factors. One is our strength, our continued electoral strength is being sort of dismissed as being unimportant. And it's obviously hugely important. The second is that we're overly discounting Trump's historic negatives. I mean, I wrote on Twitter today that there are at least nine potential disqualifiers in 2024. And I'm going to try to remember them all. But first is that a court has determined that he sexually assaulted a woman in a department store dress. A court has determined that he committed one of the largest financial frauds in American history. A court has already determined that he led an insurrection against the United States. He is singularly responsible for ending Roe. We know that he stole hundreds of most top secret documents in the country and allowed other people to access them and lied to the FBI about it. His relationship with Epstein, I think, is going to become far more material and reinforce some of these other issues. And, oh, he took more money as president from foreign governments than any president in American history. And his family took $2 billion from the Saudi government. I mean, the level of corruption that we're talking about has no precedent in the history of the United States. I think that was eight. I'm forgetting the ninth. But any one of those things are going to make it very, very difficult for people that have already not supported him and have already been voting against MAGA to turn around and now embrace him. And so I think as Democrats, we should be unbelievably optimistic about our chance to have the kind of election we want to have in 2024. In 2022, a candidate named Mandela Barnes won a very hot 
Wisconsin Senate primary for the Democrats. He won it. I interviewed him twice. He was really great, progressive and interesting and smart. And some of the never Trump people in my life, I'm not going to say who, said he's way <laughs> too progressive for Wisconsin. He'll never win in Wisconsin. Direct quote, they're racist in Wisconsin. They won't vote for someone black. The polls all showed him getting creamed. Eight points, nine points, 10 points, 11 points, like a bloodbath. He lost by half a point. This is the danger of polls. Yeah. What happened in 2022, and the New York Times published a piece on Christmas Day in 2022 that went through this, there was not only the traditional issues we have with polling, but there was actually manipulation of the polling in 2022. The Republicans launched an op that we still don't know who ran it, but they flooded the zone with hyper-Republican polls. And yeah, Rasputin in the final three weeks that pushed the polling averages down and including in Wisconsin, right? And the impact that that had is that it caused the journal, the journalist community to re-embrace the concept that we were witnessing a red wave when the independent media polling was not showing any of that happening, and nor was our own polling as Democrats, by the way. And so not only did Mandela Barnes probably lose because of this, but we probably lost the House because the House Democrats will tell you that when the red wave narrative returned, there was money that had been committed to them by major donors that went away and went to other places, and we barely lost the House. And so, yes, the, the polling game is now part of the information war, right? This is part of the daily scrum. And in 2022, the Republicans did what they do now and everything is they cheated, right? They invented fake polling. They put it through the polling averages. And, you know, credit ABC News for having some accountability because they got rid of Nate Silver, Right. And and who who laundered this false information that we all knew was false, by the way. I mean, I called out the first piece I wrote that there was an operation going on here was on October 23rd of the election in 2022. So Democrats have to get smarter, as we often do in most things involving this daily information war, is that this stuff is getting weaponized against us and we've got to be smarter about it. And, you know, I've tried to do my part in presenting every day on Twitter and on my Substack, Opium Chronicles. You know, the world that I see, having been in this now for over 30 years and been an you know, awesome former TV producer and writer and former journalist that I was, is that I try to present to Democrats the world that I see, which is often at odds with the media world that we live in that's been so influenced and shaped by the right-wing noise machine and by the bullying of the media by the right that we have to start extricating ourselves from that and creating our own understandings of the world. And that's part of what I try to do every day. Right. You know, I have a lot of pollsters on this podcast and I have pollsters who I really love, who are really smart and who are partisan Dems. So here's my question for you about the polling. What's happening here is that most of these polls are still calling cell phones, right? Yes, there are still too many polls that are being done with antiquated methods. And what it means is that it's harder and harder for them to reach young people and Hispanic voters, too. You know, John Della Volpe from Harvard has a great piece today on his substack about the problems that we're starting to see arise with young voters and Hispanic voters, because there's there's just wild, unprecedented variances coming about, you know, in the polling. But let me give you one other just sort of advice, right? The more interviews you have, the more accurate the polling is. And so if you have an 800-person sample poll or a 1,000-person sample poll, 
you know, traditionally, we would not then take the 100 interviews that somebody does with young people, which has a margin of error of 10 percentage points, not two or three, and really treat that data seriously. You could treat the, the overall poll seriously, just in traditional way the math works at polling. But you didn't then say, in this poll of 1,000 people, the 100 interviews we did with young people show X, and have that become meaningful. And so one of the things that's happening this cycle, which I think is unique to this cycle and was not happening as much in 2022, is you're starting to see you know, mainstream news organizations, USA Today last week, the New York Times a few weeks ago, starting to make judgments about demographic groups based on very small number of interviews. And it's not right. It's a violation of what is possible to extract from a poll. And USA Today was deeply, deeply guilty of this last week, where they actually claimed over two full days, front page stories, USA Today, two days in a row, leading their website, that Donald Trump was winning young voters and losing you know, older voters. The chance of that being true is zero, right? There is zero chance. And they knew that. And they ran with those stories anyway. And so what's happening is the media organizations, I think, are getting lots of clicks on these more exotic polls and polls with, you know, particularly with pro-Republican leans because the information, the Twitter world, social media world, you know, gets, you get a, you get a lot of clicks when you attack Biden, right? You get a lot of traffic when you go after Biden. And so I would just say about polling is that I think what's happened is that the people that make their living off of interpreting polls and doing polling are exaggerating a little bit about what you can actually read out of a poll. And I'll just give you two final bits of advice. One is no poll can predict anything. All poll can do is tell you where things are today. They can't even tell you where they're going to be tomorrow, let alone 11 months from now. And so any concept that there is predictive capacity from a poll is just false. It's wrong. And, and it's irrelevant, right? And the second thing is this, you know, being more reliant on independent polling of large samples and for the media organizations to be more honest, as the Washington Post was, when the data comes back a little junky and a little weird, which happens, right? And, you know, if those polls were being presented to a candidate, the candidate would tell them, hey, I know I've lived in this district. I know how this district's voted for the last 20 years. There's no way this data is right. You go fix it. And go do it again and eat it. You got to go redo the poll. Instead, what's happening, like with this USA Today Suffolk poll, is last week, is they released a poll that they knew was wrong and they shouldn't have done that. And journal, the media organizations have to take greater responsibility for making sure the information they present to voters isn't misinformation. And that's their job. And they are misinforming with polling now. It's a serious problem. And it also, though, means that all of us who know better. We have to, you know, create more consequence yeah, and also create more consequence for them for this, right? There needs to be more calling out, naming and shaming for this kind of behavior because this stuff not only can determine, as you pointed out, what happened in 2022, but House Republicans may be making judgments about how they play Biden based on this polling. Foreign governments may be making decisions about whether to invade another country, right, based on... Biden's approval rating. These are serious matters. The gun is loaded on this stuff. This isn't sort of just, oh, we got a bunch of numbers. Let's dump it out and see what happens. This is big stuff. And people got to take greater responsibility for getting it right. So important. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Everything I wanted to know, you answered. I appreciate you. <laughs>
Well, Molly, thank you. And I just want to end by saying, listen, folks, let's be optimistic. I mean, I really do think we're going to have a really good election. My view is that we're just as likely to win this election by five, six, seven points as we are a couple points. Trump is in a lot of trouble. He's a weak, historic candidate. We're going to kick his ass. Let's just go do the work and get this done together. Thank you, Simon. John Feinblatt is the president of Every Town for Gun Safety. Welcome to Fast Politics, John. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. I feel like so many things make me depressed, <laughs> but your organization makes me a little bit hopeful. So talk to me about Every Town and what you're working on right now. Well, you know, I think the interesting thing is when we started Every Town 10 years ago, we said we needed to build a counterweight to the NRA. We said that for a simple reason, which was, you know, the NRA really treated Congress and the White House like its clubhouse. It had outsized power. Many people say it was the second most powerful lobbying organization in the country. And the truth is that they, at that time, could block uh, most common sense gun laws and interestingly block laws that the American public, at least according to polling, widely supported. And so we felt like you had to clear the brush and you had to really focus on what the obstacles to making progress uh, were. And there's no question about it. The NRAs was one of the biggest obstacles. I feel like last week was a bad week for the NRA. No question about it. In fact, it's not just last week. It's really the last couple of years when the onion started to get peeled on the NRA and we started to see that they really treated the NRA like a personal piggy bank. And we've all heard the story about the Brioni suits and the yeah. yachts and the private plane. But I think what we don't hear enough about is the fact that when we've all forgotten about the extravagances, there are many families across this country who will never forget the fact that they lost their children and their loved ones. And in many ways, to tie that back to the NRA, which has blocked at every juncture the most reasonable gun safety legislation. And, and I really can't help but going back to the days after Sandy Hook, where everybody in the country thought, well, this is the moment that we're finally going to have uh, common sense gun legislation. And it was a pretty modest bill that was in front of the Senate. Uh, it was a background check bill. And it was, as you might remember, it was supported by Pat Toomey, a Republican from Pennsylvania, and Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Pat Toomey, who's retiring because he can't stand this we thought this was the dream team, you know, of sponsors. And yet at the last minute, this very modest bill, which in fact, I'm almost embarrassed to admit, had some giveaways to the gun lobby in it, with Republicans voting against it, but a handful of Democrats voting against it, which is just a good reminder of the fact that while Republicans were opposed to this, Democrats were too, and, and not because Democrats weren't sympathetic by and large, but because the NRA really had disproportionate power at that point. And those days are over. And in many ways, those days are over because we've seen firsthand what the NRA is really about. But just to give you some sort of sense of it, in 2012, 70 Democrats running for the House or Senate received A's from the NRA. You don't receive an A without filling out a questionnaire. Uh, today, zero. And so you can see how things have changed so dramatically. And as you might remember, a year ago or so, we finally passed a bipartisan bill in the Senate. It was the first 
that really gun safety bill to be passed in 27 years. And it had every Democrat on it, unlike the days after Sandy Hook, and it had 15 Republicans on it, including Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and John Cornyn, who was the actual lead Republican negotiator. So the political calculus has changed significantly on this issue. The NRA's letter grades, which used to be a king and queen maker, now are a little bit more like a scarlet letter. And the NRA itself is just a shadow of its former self. I think I think the New York Times last week called it a ghost ship, uh, which I thought right. was uh, very descriptive. But when you look at almost any measure, when you look at the money they spend on lobbying and politics, it's down like 75%. If you look at their membership dues, I think they're down 40%. Spending $1.5 on legal fees to defend them in court, they're in very bad shape. There's no question about it. And interestingly, you have to ask the question, well, does that translate to a loss of political power? And I think the most recent interesting example is the elections in Virginia. It's November because that's their home. That's where their headquarters are. And from a reputational point of view, if nothing else, Virginia is very important to them. And every town outspent them 10 to 1. And it wasn't just that we outspent them. We actually denied them what they were looking for, which was control of both houses of the legislature so that they could actually roll back the gun safety legislation that had been passed there. And so they're broke and they're down on their influence. Yeah, it's such an interesting and also well-deserved position for them to be in. The thing that I'm struck by is the polling on this issue, like people don't actually want to live this way, but we're stuck here. Tell me how we're not actually stuck here. Explain to me where we are. It's a good point you raised because this was always the conundrum that we had to deal with 10 years ago when we started, which is, you know, how can... After Sandy Hook, you lose on a background check bill when you poll it and you see that 85% of Americans support background checks. I mean, I think that our lowest number, which was somewhere, I think it was in Wyoming, was 72% approval. And I think because the NRA in those days had a real stranglehold on elected officials, and it was an interesting example of the fact that, and this isn't the only time we've ever seen this, where elected officials really aren't representing their constituents. And so that's why we thought it was so important to really shine a very harsh spotlight on the NRA and, as I say, really expose what they're about, which is actually not a gun rights organization, certainly not a gun safety organization, which they proclaimed in many years past to be, but they are a personal piggy bank, and that's what they are. And I think that in many ways, that harsh spotlight has helped significantly to change how people see the issue of gun safety and most importantly, how politicians do. And so I gave you the example of Virginia, but I can give you lots more examples. Um, you know, in 2016, the NRA was probably Trump's largest outside donor. They put $30 million into his race. By 2020, they could only spend half of that on politics because they were hemorrhaging money. And they only made three bets. One was Trump and the other two were the two Georgia runoffs. And obviously they lost both. But so much has changed. Uh, 21 states now have universal background checks. 21 states have red flag laws. I think 30 some states have laws barring domestic abusers from being able to buy guns. And so what we've seen is at the state level, we've made a significant amount of progress. And then just about a year ago, that 
progress extended uh, to the U.S. Congress. And the truth is that the NRA opposed the bipartisan bill that was passed a year plus ago. But Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and John Cornyn didn't care anymore. They don't have the power they used to, right? So there's the Rahini case. This Supreme Court is pretty antagonistic to any kind of, you know, they feel that if the framers had muskets, then everyone else should have, then everyone in the world should have AR-15s. It's quite a leap. Yeah, it's quite a leap, but it's called, but I don't know if you know this, it's called textualism. Uh And so I'm curious where you are now. They seem to be backtracking a little bit, but again, we never know with this court. The decision that Judge Thomas wrote has basically just created so much chaos in the federal courts. That's the Bruin case we're talking about. The idea was that New York State was not allowed to make the kind of gun laws it wanted. Yeah, basically what it required, as you said, was an historical underpinning or a historical context for laws. And if a judge couldn't find some sort of historical precedent for the law, then the law actually violated the Second Amendment. But it's created just chaos. I mean, you've got judges basically saying, can I hire an historian? (laughs) I'm a judge, not a historian. I, I don't know what the laws were in England before this country was founded. I don't know what the laws were, you know, in the late 1600s or the early 1700s. And so you've got real chaos in the federal courts with judges just, you know, in one part of the country deciding one way, another part in the other way. And why that is so damaging is because, you know, courts are supposed to actually provide predictability. That's why precedent is so important from our courts. But in fact, what we've got is just unpredictability. But the case that you are actually referring to, this most recent case that the Supreme Court heard arguments, the Rahimi case, is one where you've sort of at the far out reaches where the challenge was, could you actually bar a domestic abuser from owning guns? And this was a Fifth Circuit case with with, uh, judges basically saying, well, there's no historical precedent for such a bar. Which is crazy because, you know, what's historical precedent? That women were property, not even human beings. Right. And so there was no question about it when this case was argued before the court. You had, I don't want to be somebody who's a prognosticator of Supreme Court decisions, but clearly there was a lot of sympathy across the bench for the idea that, of course, you would bar a domestic abuser from owning a gun. I mean, what could be more dangerous? And so... My hope is that we'll start to resolve what the Bruin decision really meant, because right now nobody really in the judiciary knows what it means and they're sort of grappling with it. Yeah, it is such a incredibly crazy time right now. So so let's talk about this online hub dedicated to holding the gun industry accountable. This is one of the really interesting things. The NRA has worked really hard on protecting gun manufacturers, right? That's sort of, which makes sense because corporations are people. It's really interesting to me because I think the NRA, and this is, is this was in their sort of height of their power. I think they learned uh, some things probably from other fights about industry, whether it be tobacco or auto. But what they did was they persuaded Congress to bar research. Can you imagine where we would be with tobacco if we didn't have medical research? They convinced Congress to give the industry blanket civil immunity. I mean, 
where would Ralph Nader be if the auto industry had blanket civil immunity, meaning that you couldn't actually sue them? And so what they did was they built sort of a fortress around the industry because in many ways, really, what is the NRA? It's really, it represents the industry. It's their protector. And so it used Congress to really build this sort of impenetrable fortress around the industry. And it sort of took away some of the tools that are normally used in fights against corporate malfeasance, such as research, very important, such as the ability to sue, very important. Now, We've been able to do some very creative workarounds around that blanket civil immunity and actually have been quite successful very recently in suing the industry. And there are a number of cases that have given substantial awards to plaintiffs, but more importantly, many of the settlements that we've reached have actually changed the industry's practices. For instance, requiring online sellers of ammunition to embed an age verification system in their platform or barring ghost gun sellers from selling in the state of California or shutting down manufacturers and dealers who are responsible for dis disproportionate number of uh, what we call crime guns. And those are guns that are recovered at crime scenes. But there's much more to be done in, in this area, but you've got to bring the industry uh, to the table. And I think the only way you're going to bring the industry to the table is by actually holding them accountable in court. But just think of some of the things that the industry could do. What if you had a palm print recognition gun that could only be right. fired by the rightful owner? Well, we wouldn't be waking up in the morning and reading about, you know, a four-year-old playing hide-and-go-seek and finding their parent's gun in the sweater drawer and accidentally killing their sibling hurting themselves. Or we wouldn't be reading about, which sadly we are reading a lot about, teenage suicide. Where do teens, you know, get their guns? They usually get them from their parents or their relatives who have negligently stored them. Or here's something that most people don't realize. In fact, at, there was a point where I didn't realize this, which is when you ask, well, how did guns get into the black market? One of the most reliable ways is through home burglaries and car break-ins. Well, those guns would have no economic currency in the black market if they could only be fired by their rightful owner. I mean, there are other even simpler things like you do when you read, you know, these stories of a four-year-old, you know, firing a gun, you think like, well, how can a four-year-old actually pull back the trigger of a gun? Well, it's because of the way it's weighted, but, you know, couldn't the gun industry reweight re the trigger? So it's harder to pull. Yeah. So this database that you guys are, that you guys have, right, you'll be able to sort of point to, I mean, this is like a gun mocker institute a little bit, right, that you give the evidence to people to see just what the numbers are, right? Yeah, I think that the gun industry is, I hate to say it this way, but I'm going to, the gun industry has gotten away with murder. And somehow, you know, nobody really puts the gun industry front and center. Yeah, why not? I think it's because there have been so many protections built around them, uh, truthfully. But, you know, think about when a police department does a press conference, you know, and they lay out the guns that they recovered and they talk about actually the perhaps the caliber of the gun, but they never talk about who made the gun. So it's a very simple thing about naming the gun that's so important. And so truthfully, what we are trying to do is use some of the same 
tactics we use with the NRA by shining a harsh spotlight, by feeding the facts to the public. We're trying to do that about the gun industry as well, because the truth is they are getting away with murder. It has been hard to hold them accountable, but time's up. Yeah. And I think we should end there. Thanks so much, John. Thank you very much. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jungfest, I have to tell you, this uh, story really sent me into a rage that my usual numbness uh, does not allow. But I am pretty angry about uh, this situation here at the border. Uh, Tell me what you're seeing here. So uh, Greg Abbott, who is like the uh, Henry Kissinger of Texas, has, um, (laughs) you know, really into uh, trying to make it. So he actually said something this weekend about how he does everything but shoot the migrants. We are using every tool that can be used from building a border wall to uh, building these uh, border barriers uh, to uh, passing uh, this law that I signed that led to another lawsuit by the Biden administration where I signed a law uh, making it illegal for somebody to enter Texas from another country. Uh, and so and and they're subject to arrest uh, and subject to deportation. And so we are deploying every tool and strategy that we possibly can. The only thing that we're we're not doing is we're not uh, uh, shooting people who come across the border uh, because, of course, the Biden administration would charge us with murder. So basically what happened here is that three migrants were drowning. And uh, it looks like, and again, we don't totally know yet, but that um, the Texas military would not allow border agents to come in and try to save them. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of investigation here. They have at many points, the people at the state level in Texas have done things to hurt these people, but this uh, might be the closest they've gotten to really actively being involved in uh, in killing people we don't know yet, but really just one of the worst things I've ever seen. And for that, Greg Abbott is yet again the uh, the creator of our terrible moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.